Well, let me invite you to remain standing out of adoration for the God who loves you and speaks to you even now through His Word. And uh, grab your copy of God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we would invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles that are in front of you. And you can find today's text on page 871. It's always useful to have a Bible open and in front of you as we study God's Word together that you may examine the truth of what you are hearing And you may let the Spirit move even through the Word as He guides and leads you to Christ this morning. And for the last nine months, almost exactly, we have been walking through this Gospel of Luke. And if you know how long Luke is, today we have now reached officially the halfway mark at the end of chapter 12 as we want to cover 25 verses this morning, verses 35 through 59. It's a rather long text that even is somewhat debated in terms of is everything that we are looking at this morning just one part or part of one sermon or is Luke kind of just adding things together from different teachings of Jesus Christ and kind of smashing them all together with his editorial direction and I think it's proper for us to walk through all of it together Because even if some of these texts we're going to look at this morning may have been spoken on another occasion, I do believe Luke has put them together for us to see something of a common theme woven throughout the fabric of this text as it relates to Christ's coming return and judgment. And as it is such a long text, what I want to do is just read verses 35 through 40. Because verse 40 is the central exhortation of the passage, and so I just want to land our attention there before I pray and then ask for God to bless our study of his word, and then when we will study together. So let us hear now, for God is indeed speaking to you uh, through his word. Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him when at once he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, He will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Redeemer Church, what do we believe about God's Word? But the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together once again. Father, we do come to you this morning on your day to receive from you by your Word. We pray that you would send the Spirit among us, that we might not only observe this truth, but that we would love it, that we would know it, and that we would obey it. Stir us even by the Spirit for increased readiness for your Son's return. Give us a holy longing and desire to see his kingdom come even now as we study this text. So help us to hear with hearts of readiness and expectation, with minds of of eagerness and faith. And help me to preach as I ought as a dying man unto dying people, ready for Christ to return. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. It was on April 17th in 1970 that much of the Western world in the late morning hours were glued to their television screens, observing cameras 
that were fixated on clouds above the South Pacific. The USS Iwo Jima was full of sailors and captains and various officers in the Navy standing on deck, eagerly looking above for the return of the Apollo 13 crew that had just gone through their failed mission to reach the moon. And on the TV screens, as it got close to their projected re-entry time, it began a countdown clock. And some of you know the story that the Apollo 13 crew returned uh, quite a bit after they were anticipated to return, but nonetheless, people still were glued to their television screens. The Navy men were fixated on the skies above. And it's a picture of readiness It's a picture of watchfulness that Jesus is after in our text today as we await his return, which has been some 2,000 plus years almost in the making. So the simple question that Jesus has for us that is dominant throughout this entire passage is, are you ready? Are you ready for Christ's return? What does it even look like, you might ask, to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? If you're familiar with the New Testament, what you might know is that from its start to finish, the return of Jesus Christ is one of its central themes. It shows up everywhere. As best I could discern in my study this week, on average, the return of Christ is mentioned, taught about, explained, exalted in once every 25 verses in the New Testament. And it's a picture that for the first time we're going to get today in Luke's gospel. It's going to show up later on in the gospel of Luke. But we get today in chapter 12 the first extended teaching from our Lord related to his second coming. And if you wanted to summarize the 25 verses that we're going to look at, you could simply write down that Jesus is telling us readiness for his return means faithfulness in his service. That's what it means to be ready. Those who are ready are those who are faithful in his service. And if you wanted to just make it even simpler, kids, this might be helpful for you. The simple exhortation of this passage today, what Jesus wants to tell you is be ready for his return. So if you glance down at our text, verses 35 through 59 in your Bibles, you'll notice in all likelihood you've got five different paragraphs of differing lengths. So it's possible that we could walk through this passage with five signposts along the way. But there's something else happening in the text that I hope we'll see. There are three different subjects as Jesus works through his teaching. If you just glance down, verses 35 through 38, Jesus is speaking directly to his 12 disciples. Then in verse 49 through 53, Jesus is speaking about himself quite uniquely. And then verse 54 through 59, he's speaking to the crowds. So if you picture the scene before him, Jesus is in the midst of this kind of extended, prolonged teaching on the nature of his kingdom, and he's going to direct his attention to the disciples first, then he's going to speak specifically about his work, why he came, and then it's like he's going to lift up his gaze if the disciples were seated on the front row, and he's going to look to the rest of the crowd seated there and speak to them directly. So what I want to do is thus just walk through the passage with three simple headings. First, we want to see the disciples' need for faithfulness. Then we want to hear the Lord's cry of earnestness. And then we'll conclude with the crowd's risk of carelessness. Are you ready for Christ's sudden and certain return? Now, if you were with us last week, you may, may think that this kind of 
emphasis on eschatology, the last things, the second coming of Christ, is somewhat jarring in light of what he just covered. Because if you were with us last week, what happened at the beginning of our text uh, last week in verse 13, Jesus is in the midst of discoursing about real sober and serious subjects of judgment and the reason to stand in fear before the king. And uh, this man that's in the crowd interrupts Jesus, maybe quite rudely or maybe quite logically, and says, hey, Jesus, I need you to settle a family dispute. And Jesus then directs his attention to that man and then to his disciples to say, well, what you need to know is most important is treasuring the kingdom. So treasure the kingdom we saw last week instead of your wealth. And then it was a call to treasure the kingdom in the midst of your worry. But I want you to see, if you just scan your eyes through the entirety of chapter 12, there is a very consistent note throughout each section about living in light of the end. Because if you see in verse 1 through 3, he's speaking to his disciples about the leaven, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he says in verse 3, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. So what you do in secret will one day be made known to all. So live in light of that truth. Then he goes through the next few sections and says there's a coming judgment. So living in light of that coming judgment means standing in fear and honesty before the Lord now. How are you to deal with your wealth now? Well, give it away. Store up treasures in heaven because there moth can't destroy them and thief can't, thieves can't take them. And what about your worry, Jesus says? What about your need for food, clothing, other essentials in life? He says, look to the kindness of your father, little flock, who it's his pleasure to give you the kingdom. One day it's all going to be yours. And so it just kind of continues on in many ways with what he has been discoursing and instructing this crowd on in chapter 12 as we give our attention to the fullness of the teaching so far in Luke's gospel on the second coming of Jesus Christ as we first want to see the disciples' need for faithfulness. Look at verse 35 and 36. He starts with a string of commands. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they may open the door to him at once and when he comes and knocks. Now kids, in the ancient world, men usually wore robes, not unlike actually in some ways what I'm wearing this morning. And the sign of readiness would be girding up your loins is what the text more literally says. You might have a footnote in your Bible at the beginning of verse 35 that says that. And what they would do is they tuck their robes under their belt in order to kind of bring it up a little bit so when the master knocked at the door, they wouldn't trip over their robe in the hurry to answer the door. And so Jesus is taking some just common natural realities and his time and spiritualizing them in many ways. Because it was also quite common at that time, if you had a wedding, it was like an all-night affair. So it was very normal for a master to go off to a wedding and he would return the late watches of the night. And he's saying here is those servants who are doing what they ought to do in readiness and faithfulness, they gird up their loins, they're dressed for action. They're always awake, ready to answer the door when the master knocks on it. And even as we just read, we, I think, are meant to see an echo of Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 3 that he stands at the door to knock upon people's hearts. And are you ready to receive him? I dare say it's even true that every time that we gather together as God's people on the Lord's day and Christ is faithfully preached from his word, he's knocking on your heart. Kids, he's knocking on your heart right now. And are you dressed for action? Are you awake, 
ready to receive him. And notice in verse 37, the blessing that comes for those who are ready. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Uh, Now, students, I want you to underline the back half of verse 37, because it would have been utterly shocking for his disciples to hear what he just said. Because the expectation would be what? If the master comes and knocks on the door, he would be the one sitting down at the table to be served by his servants. But do you see what Jesus just said he's going to do? He's going to knock on the door. Open it unto him, and he'll sit you down and serve you. And as I was reading some scholars this week, they can only find two places in in ancient literature where a master is said to have served his servants. And maybe you know the mercy and humility of Christ, that that's a central part of his mission. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You even have a wonderful picture of that in John chapter 13. You can read it later on tonight where John says that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end, and so he took a towel around his waist and he stooped low and served his disciples by washing their feet. This is the kind of blessing that awaits those who are faithful and ready for the King of Kings as he comes with his kingdom. And so then if you just scan your eyes through verse 38 and 39, it's just the picture of readiness. He may come in the second watch of the night. He may come in the third watch of the night. It's going to be sudden so much so that it's like a thief coming in the midst of the night. And so the simple exhortation, notice verse 40, is you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So kids, what I want you to know is Jesus' coming is not like this kind of spiritual divine game of hide and seek. As though right before his coming, he's going to announce to the world, ready or not, here I come, thus hoping you're ready. He's just going to come. It's certain, it's sudden, and so you must be ready for Christ's coming. Many of you know that we have six little children at home, and so as you would probably expect, our home is full of volume and craziness oftentimes throughout the week. Our home is somewhat small, I guess, or at least where our children play is always in a couple of different rooms right next to the kitchen, and so it's not infrequent during the course of a week where I'll be playing with the kids or in a room where they're making all kinds of noise, and Emily will say something from another room to me, and I won't register that she just said something to me, but I register that something was said, if that makes sense. And so I'll say, hey, were you talking to me? And ordinarily, she'll say, yes, I was talking to you, and here's, here's what I wanted to ask you or, or say to you. And it seems as though Peter has that same kind of spiritual sense right now. Notice verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? So who, who are you talking about, Jesus? Uh, we know from verse 22 and following, if you look up there, he was speaking directly to his disciples. And frustratingly, or fascinatingly, Jesus, of course, doesn't answer Peter's question. He just jumps right into another parable, which I do think we're meant to see as directly and immediately being spoken towards the disciples. And it's a parable about faithful servants, what happens to them, and faithless servants, what happens to them. And Jesus says, first of all, there is a reward, a reward waiting faithful servants. Look at verse 42 through 44. So who then is the wise? 
and faithful manager, whom his master will set over his household to give him their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So it's a promise of a reward. If you are faithful with what I have entrusted unto you, this knowledge of my will that I have given unto you, my disciples, there's a reward waiting you. And if you just look back at verse 42, I think the disciples would have heard a clear echo to the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph. Kids, do you remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? This man who was given something in Pharaoh's household and what happened to him? Eventually, he's placed at Pharaoh's right hand. He's second in the greatest kingdom in the earth. And what is he doing? He's feeding people in years of fullness, in years of famine. And what Jesus means for us to know is the same kind of thing is going to happen for those servants who are faithful and ready for Christ's return. In the new heavens and the new earth, they will be exalted. In just a similar way as Joseph was exalted in that kingdom. There is a reward that awaits faithful servants. But the majority of Jesus' teaching here is actually on the negative part of this parable. That a retribution awaits faithless servants. Because what you'll see if you just look through verse 45, he says this is what faithlessness looks like. Uh, A servant discovers his master is delayed. And so he sins in his role, which Jesus somewhat shockingly says is going to be beating his servants and getting drunk on alcohol. He's going to fall into gross negligence of his duties and responsibilities. So what awaits that faithless servant? Look at verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. There's a reason why James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, for you will face stricter judgment. I think the immediate application even for us this morning is a warning to those of us who serve in leadership in the church. The responsibility and accountability of faithfulness is great, even before the Lord. The punishment is severe. Jesus says, which even leads to the next point he's making. What about verse 47? And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, so maybe he hasn't sinned as grossly as the first man, what happens to this one? Well, he gets a severe beating. Judgment that is somewhat less than the first. And notice this sliding scale he's on, verse 48. But the one who did not know, so someone who's ignorant of his calling and commission, In Jesus Christ. Someone who did not know and did what deserved a beating. He will receive a light beating. Now sometimes in my experience you can take texts like this and apply them in a missiological sense. And by that I mean is, okay, what about those people? What about those tribes, those people groups at the end of the earth that have never received the gospel? They have little light of the truth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus seems to say there's something of a lighter judgment that awaits those people. Wouldn't like the worst thing be that we can go and preach Jesus Christ to them and hold them more accountable thus at the day of judgment for their rejection of the truth that they have heard? And what I want you to know is from this passage, Jesus does talk about some kind of mysterious gradation of punishments at his coming judgment. But what we know certainly from Scripture 
is that whatever the judgment is, it will be terrifying. It will be terrible. And it will be deserved, is what he wants us to know. Are you ready for the coming of this king who will separate the faithful from the faithless at the day of judgment? The disciples need to see the centrality of faithfulness. And secondly, we need to hear the Lord's cry of earnestness. Ludwig von Beethoven is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, classical composers in history. When he showed up in Vienna as a young 21-year-old, he came in with this kind of brusque demeanor that was going to show all of the elite classical music critics of that society that he was indeed the true and worthy successor to this man named Mozart. And so he would come into the elite salons of the day and begin to play his piano. And he would begin to play prepared pieces or improvisations. And soon these salons realized that this is not what they were used to. This wasn't like the kind of calm and comfortable background music to our dinner parties and tea conversations. And if Beethoven ever got to a point in his playing where he felt like the room had carried on and no one was noticing what he was doing, it was said he would take his forearm and just slam it down on the piano to get everyone's attention, even often breaking these light-stringed Vienna pianos that were common in the salons. He wanted to get their attention to wake them up. And what you see now, what we hear now in verse 49 through 53, is Jesus doing something similar. He means to wake up those to whom he is speaking. And some of you may know this is true depending on your experience in churches here in America, that so oftentimes, even of course in other parts of the world, it's true that you can come to a teacher or a preacher who seems to just be content to coddle people in their comfortable standing before Jesus Christ. When in reality, what you find over and over, especially in the Gospels, is Jesus means to confront that idolatry of comfort to such a degree that he's often going to say quite shocking things to wake them up as though he's slamming his arm down on your heart. And notice what he says in verse 49. Here we hear divine frustration. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. Now students, as best I can tell, there's 25 different times in the New Testament where we're told that of a reason why Jesus came. And here's one of them right here. Why did he come? To cast fire, to judge the earth. And what we're meant to see, what's meant to jar us awake here is the anxiety. We can say the frustration of Jesus Christ for it to come. Would that this fire were already stoked. Would that this fire were already burning. Would that the Father's flames of wrath would already have fallen upon the earth. And I wonder if that fits with your notion of who Jesus is. Unless you think it's too hard. Maybe too harsh. I do think there's something of a balance he provides. Notice verse 50 in his divine determination. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I have a baptism, Jesus says. So what baptism is he talking about? We know from Luke's gospel already 
We saw in earlier chapters, he's already been baptized there at the Jordan River with John the Baptist, so surely he's not talking about that. Uh, We know from the other Gospels that he's speaking of the baptism that he was going to undergo when he went to the cross of Calvary. He spoke his suffering under the judgment of God, his enduring the flood of God's wrath as nothing less than his baptism. And I want you to be encouraged at his determination to get there. Do you see again what it says? Great is my distress until it is accomplished. Uh, The word pictures here are like a sea lane that's very narrow, and a ship's going down it and can only go one way to one destination. And we've seen even from the end of Luke chapter 9 that Jesus was in similar constraints. There was one way he could go. There was one destination for him, which was the cross of Calvary in Jerusalem. So we're meant to see something of a reason to have holy fear before Jesus Christ. He is frustrated at judgment not yet coming. But what holy love we ought to have as well, that he goes for his own to the cross of Calvary to take that judgment, to take those flaming fires of God's wrath upon himself that you and I deserve. For everyone that would turn from their sin and trust in him, the judgment that they deserve instead falls on Christ. And the final thing you want to see in this passage of the Lord's cry of earnestness is divine separation. Look at verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. But didn't Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, prophesy that the coming Redeemer would be a prince of peace? Doesn't Ephesians chapter 2 tell us he himself is our peace? Well, of course, what Jesus is saying here is that temporally, for this time period before his return, he is going to be the great dividing line in history, but more intimately in families. If you just scan your eyes through the next two verses, you'll see what Jesus will do even within homes. Siblings will be divided against each other based on what they believe. Parents will be divided against their children based on what they believe. Those who receive Christ and those who reject Christ are divided. And Jesus says, this is why he came. So students, you need to know that to come to Jesus Christ is not to come into some sort of spirituality of conflict avoidance. That he came to confront the world on their sin. And part of life and union with with Jesus Christ is confrontation with other people who don't trust in him. Loving and humble confrontation, but genuine confrontation. Isn't it true nonetheless? I know some of you are even in here today and you experience this division even in your own home as you may have children that are not walking with the Lord, or you may have a sibling that is not walking with the Lord. Jesus came, he says, to bring fire upon the earth, and he's earnest to bring it about, this division that will come even at the final judgment. So you need to see the disciples' need for faithfulness, hear the Lord's cry of earnestness, And also, we need to notice the crowd's risk of carelessness. I read a statistic recently that said the average American takes their smartphone and looks at it 81,500 times a year. Which means, on an average of every 4.3 minutes, a person will look at their phone. So in the course of the next few minutes in this sermon, you might want to look at it three or four times burning a hole in your pocket. We are good 
Smartphones prove this to be true of caring for needless things. And Jesus says the crowd runs that same risk. If you just scan your eyes again through verse 54 and 55, he says they're able to discern the weather. They know when a cloud rises that rain is on the way. They know when scorching heat comes from the south that... I'm sorry, that this blowing wind comes from the south, that scorching heat is on the way. They are good, Jesus says, meteorologists of the natural world. But they have no ability, notice verse 56, to discern the spiritual truths. He says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time?" I think what he means here, because it's kind of debated, what exactly is their hypocrisy in, in their ability to look at the weather and discern its meaning, yet not be able to discern the times in which they live? I think what they're probably saying is, is he's speaking to the crowds, is they're like, hey, we need more signs. We've seen that already in Luke's gospel. We need more manifestations of power so we might be able to know exactly what's going on around us. And Jesus says, well, You've seen those manifestations. You've seen those powers. You know how to discern the times because you can tell from the sky and the wind what's coming with the weather. But you hypocritically do not see that the coming Redeemer has arrived, that the kingdom has broken into this world. So often, isn't it true, that we are so careful to watch things in the culture and so careless to watch for things of Jesus Christ. And he gives one final image for our attention. Notice verses 57 through 59. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him along the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So what's Jesus talking about here? Again, as he often does, he's taking a normal everyday occurrence in his time and and saying it's a spiritual illustration of a much more significant eternal reality. What he's saying is what would be far better than to go to the judge who's just going to throw you into prison is to settle out of court. In the spiritual sense, in light of this context, what he's saying is this. Rather than go to the reckoning day with God, the final judgment and not have reconciled with him, do it now. Let today be your reconciliation day because when the reckoning day comes, it's going to be too late. You will be thrown to the fires of hell's prison for all eternity. It's a call to earnestly close with Christ. And so you might be in here this morning and you haven't done that. You haven't turned from your sin and trusted in him You aren't clinging to the hope of salvation that he gives you as he has borne the wrath of God against sinners there on the cross. The call to you this morning is to remember that he is coming soon. Even we saw last week, your soul might be required of you this very night. And the act of wisdom, which is right and proper, is to reconcile with Christ today and not wait another moment because he may be back in the next moment. Are you ready for his return? Uh, Many of you know I've spent the last several years studying a pastor in the 19th century named Robert Murray McShane. And 
He died at the age of 29. And his closest friends uh, would say that he seemed to be convinced of his imminent death, that he was going to die young. And so much of his ministry was, was lived in light of eternity. One of his favorite things to do on Saturdays was to go visit all of the dying people in his parish so that he could come Sunday morning with eternity ever present before his eyes, that he might be able to speak its truth with fervor and power. And he once said, time is short, my time especially, and souls are precious. And I fear many are slumbering because I watch not with sufficient diligence nor blow the trumpet with sufficient clearness. And I do think that for many of us, the Spirit means to move in our hearts this morning to have some kind of a similar conviction that we are so concerned about the world that we forget that Christ is coming, that our looking and watching and readiness in the world is often little more than forgetfulness of the coming King. So as we begin to close, I just want to pull out three thoughts, if you will, for our meditation and application as we begin to close. Three things that the truth in our text calls us to, I think, very clearly. Christ's coming return and day of judgment calls us to, first of all, expectation. It calls us to expectancy. And that is so true. I mean, that's the central, I think, point of the passage and application that we are meant to make, but I want to sit here at the end and make sure that we feel the right and proper conviction that we ought often to feel. Because how many of our days are often occupied in watching, but watching not for the things of Christ? How many of us have been eager in recent weeks watching for the coming of a college football season? Daily watching of the weather app on our phone, our financial portfolio, that movie or book soon to come out or be published that we've been looking forward to for so many months. Looking to our social media accounts to see how many people have liked our most recent picture or post. We are good at watching, aren't we? Yet are we good at expectant watching for Jesus Christ's return? It's a call to expectancy. It's a call, secondly, to accountability. Look back up at verse 48 at the end. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Increased access means increased accountability. Increased privileges of Christ means increased responsibility before Christ. And I hope you know that this is not some sort of hyperbolic statement for me to say that we in the West today in the 21st century have the greatest access, the most freedom, the highest privileges of any human beings that have been alive since Christ's ascension into heaven. And that ought to make us tremble at a certain level. What accountability we have before God. And kids, I want you to listen to me even on this point too. You're raised in a church that calls you covenant children. You receive the sign of the covenant. Every Lord's Day, your parents bring you to the Lord's house to receive covenant blessings, to receive the word, the ordinary means of grace. You are receiving continual privileges and gifts that demand responsibility before Christ. This is a text that means to sober us up in our spirituality, that we might indeed be faithful and responsible with what God has given us. So expectancy, accountability, and then thirdly, urgency. 
urgency. Surely that's the point of verse 57 through 59, urgency to close with Christ, to come to Christ in faith, but I want to take it in its much more or unnecessary implication even from that point is urgency in bearing witness to the coming king. One of the reasons the early church and the apostles were so zealous to declare Jesus Christ in all his fullness of glory and beauty is they were utterly convinced he was on the way and the world wasn't ready. So they needed to let people know the king is on the way and you must get ready. J.C. Ryle once said, time, I'm sorry, men's ideas of the wrath to come may be judged by the earnestness with which with which they exhort others to fly from it. Men's ideas of the wrath to come may be judged by how eager they are to warn people to flee from it. Could it be that possibly case exhibit A of our little longing for Christ, our small expectancy of Christ, is our struggles to bear witness to Jesus Christ? He means to wake us up with divine mercy, care, and grace. It's like we come into his house this morning and a spiritual alarm clock is chiming in our midst. And Satan is on your shoulder to ask you to press the snooze button. I'll think about that sometime later. What Jesus means to wake us up this morning. Are you ready for the king's sudden and certain coming? Let's pray. Father, I'm sure we all want to confess that no, we are not as ready as we know we should be. But we pray that in your mercy and grace you would help us to increase in our anticipation for your Son's return. That you might indeed find us faithful in our callings, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our very lives before you. That we might show our our readiness with our fruitful service unto you. And so help us, we pray, to to lift our eyes off the things of this world and on to your Son, to set our minds on things above that we might grow into his image and even grow in our desire for his return. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.